Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. In each program, we choose an exciting new book in the field of religious studies, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Robert Schettinger, professor of religion at Luther College, about his interesting new book, Was Jesus a Muslim? Questioning Categories in the Study of Religion. In this exciting book, Schettinger brings a broad spectrum of literature into dialogue to probe what we mean by the category religion. Schettinger uses this starting point to explore then how we understand Islam within this broader category of religion and what implications that might have for interfaith dialogue between Muslims and non-Muslims. Ultimately, this brings him to the question, was Jesus a Muslim? In our conversation, we explore some of the problems with comparative religion, interreligious dialogue, and several other analytical categories that we use regularly in the study of religion. Overall, he challenges us to rethink how we conceive of these terms and their practical implications for using these terms. Schettinger's work does an excellent job of outlining both the academic and practical responsibilities and implications for the study of religion. Schettinger's new book will be appealing both to the scholar of religion and to the believers we study. Without further ado, here's the interview. Good morning, and welcome to another program of New Books in Religion. Um, This morning, I have the pleasure of talking with Robert Schettinger about his new book, Was Jesus a Muslim? Questioning Categories in the Study of Religion. Uh, Good morning, Robert. How are you? Good morning. I'm I'm fine. Great. Thanks for... uh, making some time to speak with us. We've been trying to set this up for a while, so I appreciate your uh, continued uh, help to do this. Um, Before we get into some of the contents of the book, I was hoping you could uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to the study of religion, um, maybe some influential uh, mentors you had um, before we get into the contents of this book. Okay. Well, I've had kind of a, a an interesting background um, in terms of how I came to the study of religion because uh, when I went to college as an undergrad, um, I, I wasn't the least bit interested in religion, and uh, I didn't take a single religion course um, as an undergraduate student. I was a, uh, a civil engineering major, um, and that's only because I was really good at math and science when I was in, in high school, and I really didn't like the humanities at all, so... Um, I had no interest in religion, philosophy, or, or anything like that. Uh, so I basically took a lot of science, math, and engineering courses as an undergrad. <clears throat> and then I, I worked in that area for, oh, eight or nine years. But as, as things changed in my life, um, I decided uh, I, I felt a calling to go back to seminary. And it was when I went to seminary that it, it opened a whole new world for me in terms of uh, uh, this other side of things that I had never even thought about or studied before, the whole humanities. And what I really became interested in through um, a couple of my professors in seminary was, was biblical languages and, and ancient texts and manuscripts. 
Um, and so after three years of seminary, I decided that uh, what I really wanted to do was uh, not to go and become a, a, a pastor, but to go back to graduate school and get a PhD and, and teach. Um, and and I was, my interest was entirely in biblical studies, biblical languages, um, ancient manuscripts of the Bible, textual criticism, things like that. And so that's what I studied at Temple University, where I did my PhD. But um, during the time that I was working on my PhD at Temple, my uh, graduate advisor suggested that I might benefit from taking uh, a seminar or two in Islamic studies. And my first reaction to that was, why would I want to do that? I'm not really interested in studying Islam. My, my interest is in biblical studies. Um, but he suggested that um, I would be more marketable um, in, a, in a difficult job market, being able to uh, market myself as someone who could teach a basic undergraduate level course in Islam, along with my specialties in biblical studies. And uh, so just basically on his, his advice, it sounded practical. So I, I took a, a seminar on Islamic studies, um, had a wonderful teacher, Mahmoud Ayub, and uh, it opened up a whole new world for me. Just the seminary had done opened a whole new world that I didn't know existed on the humanities side um, and a religion. This, this opened up uh, the whole idea of Islamic studies in a way that I was interesting to me, uh, and I never would have thought about it had I not been sort of pushed in that direction. So I took a second uh, course in um, the study of the Quran, with, uh, also with Mahmoud Ayyub. And uh, with those two courses in Islamic studies and my specialty in biblical studies, I was able to get the job that I still hold today here at Luther College and um, taught, a, taught, a, taught an Islam course during my, first, uh, sem- uh, my second semester here, which was the spring of 2001. And, um, and I thought it went well, and it was just a, you know, a regular old religion course, just basic introductory course in Islam. But I had a student in the course uh, whose name was Huda. She was a young woman from Morocco. Um, and I believe she was the only Muslim in the course. And uh, I quickly came to know that she was extremely well um, educated in her own tradition. She knew a lot about Islam. Um, in some ways, I felt like she knew more than I did. And I didn't really think she could benefit much from being in the course, but I was glad she was there because she made a lot of good contributions. But late in the semester, she came by my office and she said, Professor Shedding, I would like to talk to you about the Islam course. So I invited her in. And we began to talk and she began to tell me um, how wonderful she thought the course was and uh, coming from Morocco to this little church-related college in the Midwest um, the last thing she expected was to be able to take a course in her own tradition. And so she was, she was telling me how wonderful it was, and I was feeling pretty good about what I was doing, but, but she didn't stop there. She said, um, all the information you're presenting, all the names, the dates, the events, the things, uh, they, they all sound correct as far as I know, but there's something wrong. And I said, oh, what's that? She said, there's something the way you're presenting Islam that doesn't feel right to me as a Muslim but I can't put my finger on exactly what it is. So I thanked her for being frank, but when she left, I thought about her comments for a few minutes, but since she couldn't be very specific, I just basically put it out of my mind. Life went on, summer 2001, came back here in the fall, ready to teach my courses in biblical studies, and then September 11th, 2001 happened, and um, really everything changed as far as the direction of, of my career, because 
suddenly everybody wanted to know more about um, Islam and in the light of 9-11. And people heard that there was this expert on Islam teaching at the local colleges, college. So I started getting um, invitations to go out and speak uh, and talk about Islam to various community groups, uh, whatever. Um, and my thoughts kept going back to Huda's comments from six months or so previous. Uh, here I was presenting myself or being presented as an expert on Islam, and yet the only person who had sat through my course, the only Muslim who had sat through my course in Islam, didn't feel like I was presenting it right or in a way that resonated with her as a Muslim. Uh, but since she couldn't be specific, I really wasn't sure exactly what was wrong. Um, so I, I, I did many of these events trying to dispel harmful myths and stereotypes about Islam in light of, of 9-11. I, I thought that was important to do. Uh, but fortunately, Huda had signed on that fall to be a, a worker, a uh, student worker in the religion department. So she and I got to spend quite a, quite a bit of time with one another and, and talk about things and try to give voice to what it was about my course that, that just wasn't resonating with her. And um, it took nearly two years of these conversations. We even did some independent study together. <clears throat> Excuse me. Before I really figured out, or she was really able to give voice to what was what was going on, and um, and and what it eventually came to was that um, I was teaching Islam through the lens of the comparative study of religion, as I had learned it in graduate school, and was teaching Islam as one of the world's great religions. And in her mind, Islam was not a religion. And so I was somehow fundamentally distorting what Islam is in uh, in her mind, uh, in the way in, in which she understood her own tradition, um, by categorizing it as religion. And so it was really that experience um, working with, with this student that uh, led me on a, a long journey of, of, of study, reflection, and, and rethinking some of what I had learned in graduate school, <clears throat> both about religion and about Islam itself, um, and that's really what what led to the uh, the writing of this book was Jesus a Muslim questioning categories in the study of religion. Yeah, Robert, this is a, a great story, and I, I feel like all the listeners should uh, should learn from this. That uh, it's great because it really shows us how much we can learn from our students and really uh, they can have these formative changes on the way we see things, our perspective on what we teach, uh, and also the the role of chance, right? You you now are uh, this scholar of Islam uh, just almost by chance, right, because of these circumstances that thrust you into the ring. Uh, I, I, have a, I have a colleague um, at, an, at another college who, refers to me as the accidental Islamicist. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, Robert, there, uh, there's, there's a, so much I, I really enjoy about this book. Um, uh, for, for me, as a, I, I also teach the world religions, and uh, we, we have these similar conversations in our class often. And um, if we're questioning the categories of the study of religion, uh, really, first, you have to begin with with this idea of what is religion. Um, so, I'm wondering if you could you could start there. Um, what what would you say religion is? How should we define it? Um, and how does this kind of uh, shape the rest of the book? Yeah, well, I mean that's the 
that that's the issue that I had to think about in, in light of Huda's comments. If Islam is not a religion, um, from her view, then I had to think, well, then what is religion? Um, how does this how does this concept function? What does it mean to say that Islam is not a religion? If say Christianity is a religion, um, since all the textbooks certainly consider Islam a religion, and uh, courses in Islam are taught in religion departments, um, you know, throughout America and, and at least Western Europe. Uh, so I had to think about this concept, and in in doing so, and going back and 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 looking at at some of the literature, uh, this is what led me into. Uh, some of the recent literature um, uh, problematizing the very concept religion itself. Uh, scholars like Russell, Russell McCutcheon, uh, Timothy Fitzgerald, Tomoko Masusawa, and other people who are, are writing on this. Um, and I had to really grapple with the idea that, that the concept, the very word religion itself, is, is terribly ambiguous, that it doesn't really point to anything real that exists in the world, that what gets gets categorized as religion or not religion is really quite arbitrary and is done differently in different places for different reasons. Um, in terms of, of Huda's <clears throat> challenge to me, um, uh, in terms of thinking about Islam as a religion, one of the, two of the things that really, um, that really got my attention uh, were reflections by two Islamic scholars who on just about every other issue would probably disagree. I mean, they would be considered uh, almost opposite poles of, of the ideological spectrum within Islam. And yet they came to almost the same conclusions about the problematic nature of categorizing Islam as a religion. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the one scholar is the Ayatollah Khomeini. <clears throat> now, I was... Um, I was attending college as an undergrad in the in the late 1970s. Um, so I was in college as an undergrad during the Iranian Revolution and the uh, the U.S. hostage crisis in Iran. <clears throat> and so I remember seeing pictures of Ayatollah Khomeini on the TV and, and television, and, and how he was presented in, in the American media as almost the the paragon of evil. But as I was studying, I came across his own writings. And as I began reading some of his writings, um, I found a very fascinating um, thinker and, and scholar working in, in those writings. And Khomeini argues that um, during the, the rule of the, of the Shah, before the Iranian Revolution, he makes the accusation that, <clears throat> excuse me, Western... Um, you know, Western supporters of the Shah, um, primarily Americans and, and the British, were um, infiltrating educational institutions in Iran, uh, trying to distort the idea of what Islam is. Um, and and his, his claim, his accusation is that they were trying to teach the Iranian people that Islam is a religion. And by categorizing Islam as a religion, what they really meant was that it's sort of an apolitical um, tradition of, of beliefs and practices and rituals, uh, really divorced from, from power. And, and his claim is that by, by trying to convince the Iranian people that Islam is a religion, 
that this would help sort of domesticate the population and um, make them more amenable to to Western influence and, and Western colonial power. Um, because they would not see Islam as something that would be motive, should motivate them in some type of political resistance um, against imperialism or colonialism. Um, so I thought that was a very interesting claim and a very interesting way to think about religion, that, re, uh, that categorizing Islam as a religion might be kind of part of a strategy to, uh, to sort of domesticate a population so that they would be more amenable to, to oppression. Um, but this was just Khomeini, and I thought, well, this is just his idea, and you know, probably nobody else thinks that way. Then I came upon reflections in the in the work of um, Farid Isak, who's a contemporary Muslim scholar, um, South African. Farid Isak describes himself as a, um, a a liberationist feminist Muslim, so he's he's really the antithesis in almost every way of someone like Ayatollah Khomeini. And Fareed Isak has been here to Luther College and has spoken here, and I've met him, and I, I sort of know him. Uh, but in his writings, he talks about um, how during the darkest hours of the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, that members of the government would come to the, um, to the Islamic community and, and say to them, we're giving you complete freedom of religion. You can pray freely. You can build mosques mosques, you can give us a call to prayer, you can, you can do all of these religious things. We're giving you complete freedom to practice your, your faith, your Muslim faith. And because we're giving you complete freedom of religion, there's no reason for you to be engaged in anti-apartheid politics. And so Isak comes to a, a conclusion very similar to Khomeini, that this concept of categorizing Islam as a religion was, again, being used as a strategy to to um, domesticate people who were living under an oppressive regime. Uh, they could be religious, and as long as they were being allowed to be religious, there was no reason for them to see any connection between their faith and political resistance to the apartheid regime. Um, so now that I saw this coming from two different voices, um, I was really, really fascinated. Then I discovered the work of David Chinister at the University of, of Cape Town, uh, who writes about the use of comparative religion as a political strategy in um, 18th, 19th century uh, colonialism in Southern Africa, when he says European comparative religionists went into Southern Africa when they were colonizing, uh, Europeans were colonizing that part of the world, and um, they, they were fascinated to try to figure out what kind of religion the people of Southern Africa practiced. And after they looked and, and, and uh, analyzed the, the, the beliefs and the, and the rituals and the things that the people of Southern Africa did, they came to the conclusion that astonished them that the people of Southern Africa didn't have any religion um, because they couldn't find anything that sort of fit their own Protestant Christian notions of what religion is. So they denied religion to the people of Southern Africa at the same time that they believed religion was a defining feature of humanity. And so it's very easy then to make the draw the conclusion um, religion is the defining feature of humanity. People of Southern Africa have no religion, therefore they're not fully human, and that authorizes then uh, the colonial oppression of that population. And so Chittister brilliantly shows how the category religion itself 
was used as a political strategy in, in this colonial venture. So as I started seeing all these different um, examples um, coming from different writers and um, different places, different times, um, I began to realize that this concept religion itself is really quite problematic and has a, uh, just the very idea of defining religion is, uh, is itself kind of a political process because religion really doesn't have an agreed upon definition. It doesn't really seem to um, describe any actual reality in the world. Um, and I, I had to come to the conclusion that, that religion, the, the issue is not what is a religion and, and what is not a religion. The issue is how do different societies and different times and places determine what counts as a religion and what doesn't? And what kind of political work does that do in the world? So my, my understanding of, of the concept of religion now is not as a thing, but as a discursive structure. Um, and, and I'm much more interested now in doing discourse analysis, rhetorical analysis of how the concept religion gets used. And I'm much less interested in trying to dis- decide what is or is not a religion or to offer a definition of religion. If I have to offer a definition of religion, for me, it's a discourse. It's not a thing. Yeah, Robert, you do this very well in the book, and uh, you really you introduce the reader to a lot a broad spectrum of uh, of literature that is very complex, and you do it in a very uh, succinct and digestible way. So, thank you for for doing that. Um, so, another large part of the book, um, you're addressing this this idea of an interreligious dialogue um and you know after after hearing you talk and after reading the book uh if this idea of religion is problematic if it's structured in in the relationship between uh you know power structures i would assume you would say inner this 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 term or this idea of an interreligious dialogue is problematic as well i'm wondering if you could kind of outline uh some of the inherent problems with approaching dialogue as interreligious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, as I began to understand the problematic nature of the concept religion and that it doesn't really uh, pick out anything specific in the world that we could identify as religion, but that it had this very, um, you know, complex ethical and, and political dimension to it. I began to think about this concept of interreligious dialogue, particularly in terms of, of framing Christian-Muslim dialogue um, around this, through the lens of the concept of interreligious dialogue. Because if it's true that, in some sense, Islam is not a religion, or if Muslims are going to be the ones denying the concept, the category religion as an adequate, adequate way of, of categorizing their tradition, then it, um, it dawned on me that as soon as someone frames dialogue between Christians and Muslims as being interreligious dialogue, then the terms of the dialogue are already defining both parties to the dialogue, Christians and Muslims, as members of religions, which is right from the, right from the get-go um, fundamentally distorting uh, the Islamic point of view. And so I started to think that any kind of dialogue that is categorized as being interreligious in nature is 
going to essentially, even without necessarily realizing it, silence at least one party to that dialogue. Now, there's a lot of literature in, in sort of the interreligious dialogue area that talks about how, how important it is in authentic dialogue for both parties to be able to fully represent themselves. And it seemed to me that that notion was being fundamentally violated by using the concept interreligious to describe this kind of dialogue, since it would, at least in the case of Christian-Muslim dialogue, silence an authentic Muslim voice by making the terms of the dialogue about so-called religious questions. Um, and in many practical ways, as I looked around and looked for some practical examples of how Christian-Muslim dialogue plays out, um, Oftentimes, it seems to me that that's exactly what happens with the dialogue, because it's interreligious, right from the start, the, the issues that get talked about um, are what we would traditionally think of as religious issues. Um, and so you get Christians and Muslims beginning to talk about and dialogue about, well, is, is Jesus um, God, or is Jesus just a human prophet? Um, is God one, um, you know, unity um, from a Muslim perspective, or is God three, Trinity, in a Christian perspective? And so much of the dialogue then starts to revolve around these so-called religious or theological issues. And in many cases, that's dialogue that is, that is really perspectival. These are, these are issues that Christians often are interested in talking about, but they're not really issues that Muslims are interested in talking about. Uh, but the Muslim issues never come to the surface and they're never put on the table to be part of the dialogue because Muslims generally want to talk much more about things like politics and economics um, rather than traditional sort of theological categories about the nature of God or the nature of Jesus. Um, and so interreligious dialogue, it just seemed to me, was was really problematic because it was forcing the concept religion on a, a tradition, in the case of Christian-Muslim dialogue, on a tradition that itself sort of denies its own categorization as religion. Um, and that, that seemed to fundamentally violate the, the basic concept of uh, authentic dialogue that both parties should be able to represent themselves um, and lead to a sort of a distorted view of Islam and a silencing, really, of, of, it, of an authentic Muslim voice within the dialogue. Yeah, and um, you use Jesus as an example here because Jesus, since that it is he is shared through both traditions, seems like an obvious uh, kind of middle ground. I was wondering if you could uh, give us kind of a, a brief uh, summary of the life of Jesus, and then what a a non-Muslim might find surprising about the the Quranic Jesus, how how these two depictions. Uh, differ and, and how this might break down a dialogue. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, it's, it's a complicated question. Um, you know, if Jesus, I mean, if, if, if dialogue between, between Christians and, and Muslims revolves around the nature of Jesus, then that, that dialogue isn't going to go anywhere because um, obviously at least some Christians are going to insist that Jesus was, 
you know, God incarnate. And Muslims are absolutely going to deny that. And so you reach, you reach a theological impasse. And there's really no common ground there. Um, and so people often like to think of Jesus as being something that Christians and Muslims do hold in common, because Jesus is such an important part of the Muslim tradition um, and is talked about so, so much within the Quran. Uh, the people say, hey, maybe Jesus can be a, a common, a point of commonality between Christians and Muslims, but then if they only talk about Jesus in sort of these theological terms, that point of commonality goes away because they just suddenly come up to this, this wall, this impasse, and there's no breaking through it. Either Jesus is God or Jesus is not God, and there's really no, no way to compromise that. But as I thought about the problematic nature of the concept religion, um, I began to realize that if religion, as many scholars are arguing, and I think they make good arguments on this, that the concept religion itself is very much a, a, a Western Christian and, in some sense, fairly modern construct, then it would stand to reason that in the ancient world, people would not have thought through that, through that lens of religion. Um, and that almost by definition, Jesus' contemporaries in the first century could not have thought of Jesus as being a religious figure. Um, now, I mean, this when I present this to Christian audiences, I mean, and initially this sounds really, really strange to them. What do you mean Jesus is not a religious figure? Um, but if they had no concept of religion as a separate, unique aspect of, of life in the first century, then... Um, then it would have been impossible for them to think of Jesus as a religious figure. So if Jesus was not a religious figure, well, then what was he? Um, and this led me into reviewing some uh, another strand of scholarship that's really developed, I think, in probably the last 20 years, perhaps, maybe a little longer, but really um, gained traction in the last 20 years, to begin taking much more seriously than had traditionally been done the Roman imperial so-called background to the New Testament. Um, traditionally, you know, the Roman Empire was always kind of there, but just thought of kind of a, as sort of a backdrop on which the, to the stage on which Jesus's life and mission of, of redemption of humanity from their sins kind of played out kind of a salvation history story. But scholars in more recent years have begun to, to recognize um, how much the realities of Roman imperial domination in the first century um, colored every aspect of, of the lives of the people uh, living in that context, which would have included Jesus, and have begun to sort of recover a much more what we might consider political understanding of, of the nature of, of Jesus's life and mission. So you have, you can look at various things, um, for example, the, um, the birth narratives of Jesus in both Matthew and Luke. Um, there are very different stories. They tell very different stories about Jesus. But the one thing they seem to have in common is they're both portraying Jesus as, in some sense, a threat to or an alternative to, to the empire. So, for example, in Matthew, um, when Jesus is born, um, Herod, the king, um, hears about the birth of this king of the Jews and immediately becomes concerned and, and, and afraid of this, of this little baby. 
Why would Herod be afraid of a little baby? Well, Herod is the king of the Jews, but he's really just a Roman puppet king. And if Jesus is a king of the Jews, then he is in some sense a threat to Herod and by extension to Roman imperial rule. And so Jesus and his family have to flee to Egypt to get away from Herod who's trying to kill him. Over in Luke, you have this story of, of the announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds on the hillside. Um, but all of the terminology that's used there, referring to Jesus as the Savior, as the one who brings good news and brings peace on the earth, is all imperial language. That's language that was used to refer to um, the Roman emperor, uh, Caesar Augustus. Um, if you look at the, the Priene inscription, uh, which describes sort of the celebration of Augustus's birthday as the one who brings the peace of Rome to the world, um, he is called Savior. Um, his, his, his coming is, is referred to as the good news, same word in Greek, uh, euangelia, the gospel. And so it's pretty clear to me and many scholars that, that Luke is intentionally co-opting this language of, of um, imperial theology and applying it to this little baby being born in a manger, um, whose birth is being announced to shepherds rather than powerful people, um, as a way to say, no, this, this little baby is the one who, who truly is the one who brings peace, who truly is the savior. Um, and by co-opting imperial language, uh, Jesus is being presented very much in, in Luke's birth narrative as an alternative to or, or a threat to the empire. And if you begin to recognize this, you can see these political resonances running all through uh, the Gospels, at least the Synoptic Gospels. I think John's a little different here, but certainly Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in many ways, um, seem to portray Jesus as as anti-Roman in, in some sense, um, as, a, as a threat to the Roman imperial system, as, as a disruptor of that system. Um, and so this becomes a much more political reading of Jesus. Uh, instead of thinking Jesus primarily through the terms of being a religious figure, somebody who's preaching individual faith, uh, individual salvation, uh, this is a figure who is at some level, and we don't know all the details, leading some kind of a, of a movement of resistance against the realities of Roman imperial domination of, of the Jewish community. Um, and the fact that he gets crucified um, would make perfect sense because Romans used crucifixion as, um, as a method of execution for those who were deemed to be a threat to the imperial order, and crucifixion was a way of a very public display of execution that was used to try to intimidate other people um, into not engaging in any kind of overt anti-imperial actions. So I think there's there's lots of evidence now to suggest that um, Jesus was much more of a political actor in the first century than um, traditional. Uh, traditional Christian interpretations have have recognized, and in some ways that you know that that sets Jesus sort of outside of the boundaries that we normally think of as being religious. Um, as if we think of religious as in some sense apolitical, Jesus transcends those boundaries of of religion, and and I think a case can be made, and I try to make it in the book, then that Jesus would have viewed the world 
not through the lens of religion, but much more, in a way, much more consistent with the way that Muslims tend to view the world um, without these clear, discrete categories of religion as something that's separate from politics, but that he would have viewed the world in a much more integrated way um, in the way that Muslims do. And that's, that's where I come to the conclusion that in that very limited sense, yes, in a sense, Jesus was a Muslim, that he was um, engaged. His understanding of, of God led him um, to be engaged in some type of a political resistance. And uh, that, that's a dynamic that I think is very, very much um, manifested uh, throughout Muslim tradition and continues to be in the, in the contemporary world. It's really important. So in terms of Christian-Muslim dialogue, I sort of want to reframe this to say instead of talking about Jesus in, in religious or theological terms in the dialogue, let's put the concept of religion itself on the table for discussion and talk about Jesus much more in terms of what was he really doing in first century Palestine? And, and what are the implications of that for how we think about Jesus today? Um, is Jesus just an object, a theological object to, to be worshipped? Or does seeing Jesus in a more overtly political way have, have implications for how we act within the world today, whether we're Christians or whether we're Muslims, and looking at Jesus as an important figure within the tradition? Yeah, and... Um... You you do a great job here. Again, uh, I'm I'm impressed in your breadth of of literature here and how you uh, you know you take a lot of sources that would normally not be put in dialogue and uh, put them in conversation very well. Um, I think um, it would be helpful here to in in our understanding Jesus as a Muslim uh, in this way, if if you could outline. Uh, what Islam is, if it is not a religion. Okay. Um, yeah, in, in the book, I, I sort of use the term that I, I, I think I say that Islam is a uh, sort of a social justice movement. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I, I struggled with that when I was writing the book to sort of come up with a way of how do I think about Islam if it's not a religion. And I'm not sure that that title is, is the best, but um, I can talk about it a little bit. Uh, again, um, the problem the problem with categorizing Islam as a religion is that it puts it, it imposes a framework on the Islamic tradition that does not grow out of the Islamic tradition, but it, that is very a very particular Western notion. Um, and it imposes that very particular Western notion on a tradition that doesn't really recognize that basic fundamental conceptual scheme. Um, and the conceptual scheme that I'm talking about here is, is the concept of, of the, um, the sacred and the secular as being two radically distinct things. Uh, so in the, in the West, you know, we sort of built our worldview on this dualistic structure that there's, there's a sacred realm and there's the secular realm, and um, you know, or the sacred and the profane, as as uh, Eliade would have used the term, um, or Durkheim, or some of these other other thinkers in the West. Uh, so we talk about a secular realm and a sacred realm, or I mean, a sacred realm and a secular realm as being two distinct, discrete entities. Um, 
that are completely heterogeneous. They don't have anything really to do with one another. And and re, our religious lives are sort of understood as being um, the way we interact with the sacred. Um, and religion becomes all about the sacred. And then the secular sphere that's sort of left over is the realm of politics and economics and, and sort of the mundane affairs of, of life. And so when you call Islam a re- religion, you're imposing this dualistic structure on the Islamic tradition. Um, and you don't have to read very far within uh, among Muslim scholars to recognize that they fundamentally um, reject the whole notion of there being this dualistic, sacred, uh, profane dichotomy. That um, the, the most, I think, the most important concept in Islam is Tawhid, uh, which means unity. Now, usually when that gets presented, particularly in religion textbooks, it's referred to, it, it, it references the concept of the unity of God. So everybody knows that Muslims are monotheists, radical monotheists. God is one, God is an utter unity, um, which is why there can't be any concept of trinity. <clears throat> um, but how he goes beyond merely the theological assertion that God is one, um, and it has at least two other dimensions that I call an anthropological dimension and um, uh, kind of a sociological dimension. The anthropological dimension is that if God is one, then it seems to uh, lead to the conclusion that humanity is one. Uh, and so you get the idea within Islam of the of the worldwide Islamic ummah, uh, this, this one worldwide community of Muslims living in unity, in uh, in submission to this this overarching divine unity, Allah. Um, but Tawhid also seems to mean um, and seems to reference a concept in which all aspects of life are integrated together, such that a sacred secular dichotomy simply has no meaning. Um, everything is integrated together as one, um, and so that instead of sorting these things out into separate separate realms, the sacred and the secular, the religious or the political, um, all of those aspects are integrated together so that what one thinks about God has automatic um, implications for how one thinks about politics or how one thinks about economics. And how one thinks about economics has um, um, implications directly for uh, the religious, the spiritual life. Um, so I, I, I call this um, a social justice movement. I, I sort of moved away from that a little bit since I wrote the book. Um, I'm not sure that that's the best way to categorize it. Um, again, I was using kind of a Western category, and, and the whole the, the trick here is uh, to try not to impose particular perspectives on a tradition that doesn't recognize those perspectives. Um, but it becomes very difficult to talk about if you don't do that. Um, but my understanding of Islam is to understand Islam, we have to understand this concept of Tawheed and the way in which our notions of the religious and the political are are deeply intertwined, interwoven in such a way that they really can't be separated out into distinct spheres. Um, 
And this is the reason why in so much modern uh, political discourse in the West, Muslims are constantly being sort of berated for using religion for political ends. And Muslims are too political. And if they could just practice their faith and worship and pray and fast and do all those things and, and stop being so political, the world would be a much better place. Uh, but that rhetorical structure completely misunderstands what Muslims are actually saying. They're mm-hmm. saying that you can't separate religion from the political. Um, that the concept of the, if you, if you affirm the sovereignty of God, which Muslims do and which most Christians would do, if God is sovereign, if God is the sovereign power of the universe, then you cannot separate out some part of life and say that God doesn't have any, um, any business being involved in this part of life um, without completely undermining the concept of divine sovereignty. If God is sovereign, God is sovereign over everything. And therefore, political structures, economic structures, other social structures, everything has to be subsumed under this, this all-embracing divine unity. And so Muslims look at Christians and say, you affirm the sovereignty of God, but then you live in a society that separates sacred from secular and takes the political and the economic and those other things and completely removes them from, from any reference to God. And God then just becomes important for one's individual spiritual life. And that, to them, looks like a complete and utter um, undermining of the concept of divine sovereignty. And, and I think they have a point there. And so that's part of where I, I see Jesus as this first century figure who himself is, is preaching um, the coming of the kingdom of God, the, the sovereignty, the kingship of God. Clearly, Jesus is affirming the sovereignty of, of, of God, Yahweh. Um, and he sees that as having direct implications for the larger political structure, because if, if Yahweh is God, um, then Caesar is not. There can only be one sovereignty. And so I think Jesus has that more integrated, Talhedic perspective on life. And if he's going to affirm the sovereignty of God, then that immediately means that he has to be rejecting the sovereignty of Rome, and that makes him a highly political actor. I think that's what's going on with Muslims in the contemporary world by really taking the concept of divine sovereignty and, and this integrated worldview seriously means that if they want to live life in submission to this, this divine unity, then that means all aspects of life have to be lived in that way. And that means political and economic and, and other social structures and institutions. Everything has to be brought under under that um, into submission to that 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 divine unity, um, whereas Western Christianity has sort of carved everything up into these separate spheres, this dualistic structure, um, and so Christianity in a sense becomes a religion in the sense of being something that's sui generis, that's unique, that's, that's separated out from the secular affairs of life, and becomes much more of a a political. A, a political, spiritual kind of tradition, and um, my understanding of how that rhetorical structure works is that this this creates sort of what I call a discourse of domestication. Uh, we can all be religious, and as long as we're religious, we're not really paying attention to the um, the larger political and economic structures uh, and what's going on around us, um, and engaging in in healthy critique of those structures. And um, 
with all of these differing opinions of, of what religion is and what it consists of and uh, how we should understand it, you offer uh, a new way of uh, engaging in dialogue. You call it a meta-religious dialogue. I'm wondering if you could uh, describe what that dialogue would look like. Yeah, and really what I'm asking for there or what I'm, what I'm trying to conceive of is by meta-religious, I'm, I'm just thinking of, of dialogue that um, that transcends the category religion itself and actually makes the category religion um, part of the dialogue, puts it sort of at the center of the dialogue. Um, so the Christians and Muslims then, instead of talking about religious things when they, when they dialogue with one another, um, can actually get to what I think is the much more important issue. Um, Muslim, an authentic Muslim voice then can be heard because a meta-religious dialogue would then authorize the Muslim voice to critique the concept of religion and say, well, here, you know, our tradition, we don't think of our tradition as a religion. Um, and here's why. And here's how that concept distorts our view. Um, and this would be a voice that Christians almost never hear. And then it would sort of put the onus back on Christians to think about, well, do we think of Christianity as a religion? or as, as not a religion, or what are the implications of, of thinking of Christianity as a religion, and, and how consistent is that with, um, with what we think we may know about how Jesus acted in the first century. So um, I have to admit that in my own mind, I, you know, when I wrote the book, I'm not, I wasn't really too clear exactly how this kind of dialogue would play out, and in some ways I'm not sure practically uh, that it can, um, but I was just looking for a way to try to get beyond the concept of interreligious dialogue, which which shuts down the voice of one party to the dialogue. I think right from the beginning, um, and try to conceive of a of a type of dialogue that I think would be more authentic in terms of it would allow each side to really fully uh, represent their own view. Um, and it seems to me the only way that that can happen is if the concept religion itself is interrogated as part of the dialogue and not just assumed as a clear and unproblematic category. Yeah, I, I think you did a, a great job with that. I think uh, the book overall, you did a, a very good job of offering something that would be uh, beneficial to both kind of the laity, so to speak, and for academics. Um, you, you cross these, this, this division line very well and uh, offer very complicated academic work in a very uh, digestible way for the lay audience. And uh, I think I'll encourage others, both in uh, academics and in kind of the uh, religious realm to rethink how how we understand these categories. Uh, I think I think you're very successful. Um, yeah, I want to ask you one other question, uh, which is not uh, tied to the book, but um, definitely uh, there's implications from this book. Um, maybe you have had to offer this at Luther College, but um, how how would you teach a world religions course? Uh, this seems like it might be this whole idea of a world religions class might be problematic for your understanding of, uh, of religion. How, how might you approach this then? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, sort of kind of as a policy here at Luther college within our religion department, we've, 
um, we've moved away from teaching any kind of, of real broad comparative classes. Um, I don't think we've had a world religions course since I came here. Uh, we did have a sort of a, an, an Eastern and Western religions course, but we're not even teaching those right now. So we've, we've sort of moved away from, from broad comparative courses. Um, and it's not only because of everybody understanding the, the, the problematic nature of the, the concept of religion. It's, it's more just pedagogical. If you try to deal with too many traditions in one semester, you just can't go into any depth. And, and we just didn't feel that that was really helping our students too much. But um, from a more ideological level, uh, yeah, it would be very difficult for me to teach a course on a, a traditional comparative course on world religions because I um, in order to do that, and I'm not saying that I would want really want to teach a course like that, but if I were in a position where I really had to, um, I would have to make the concept religion. So I would have to problematize the concept religion right from the beginning um, in order to allow the different traditions to sort of speak their own voice in relationship to that and not start with the assumption that all of these, these traditions are religions and that religion itself is unproblematic. But that would be very difficult to do in any kind of a one-semester course because the whole problematizing of religion in a way that actually can get students, undergraduate students, to really sort of think about this, that could take half a semester just of itself. And then you don't really have much time left to deal with the, with the different traditions. So I do find broad comparative courses, um, I, I do find them problematic. Uh, and I'm not sure just how useful uh, they really are or if they do sort of perpetuate this kind of myth or stereotype um, that religion is a clear and unproblematic category because I don't think that it isn't. What I am beginning to teach more, are, um, particularly for upper-level students, is courses simply about the concept of religion. Uh, take a whole semester to read some of this literature and think about the very nature of the concept itself. Um, so a religion course that's just about the concept religion rather than about specific religions. That's great. Um, before I let you go, um, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're working on now and kind of your, some of your future projects are, are going to be. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, I did follow up. I have followed up, um, with Jesus the Muslim with another, um, fairly short book that I hope will be out, um, before the end of this year, I'm not sure what the production production schedule is going to be on it, but um, I really became interested after Was Jesus the Muslim about the whole concept of uh, religious categories and how we categorize people in different religious traditions or categorize things religion or not religion. And, um, and I became interested in, in sort of religious identity claims and, and the way in which in the world today, it seems to me, particularly here in America, uh, people make very, very strong and exclusive claims to religious identity. You know, I am a Christian and I can't possibly ever see myself as being anything other than a Christian. Um, or I am a Muslim and, and we make very, very strong, um, identity claims. And I wanted to think about sort of the, psychology behind that. And so I wrote a short book um, that my title, I, the, the publisher may change it, but my title, working title, has been Radically Open, Transcending Religious Identity in an Age of Anxiety. Um, I, I use some sort of a Jungian framework here to argue that um, 
these very strong religious identity claims that people make in, in the contemporary world uh, may have something to do with loss of spiritual depth within the, within the society, um, and that these religious identity markers uh, come to function as sort of a, um, um, a way of managing anxiety due to loss of, of spiritual depth. Um, and so this is more of a, a psychological approach to the to the issue of religious identity. So um, radically open, transcending religious identity in an age of anxiety. That's that's my title. Um, the manuscript is with the publisher, and I'm just kind of waiting for them right now to um, get it into production. So I'm hoping that that will appear before the before the end of the year. Um, and beyond that, I, I have this idea, but I haven't really worked on it in any detail yet. Of of sort of again, in the same vein, but going beyond what I've done in the past, um, is to come back to sort of Jesus in, in Christianity and Islam. Uh, and I have this idea of a book that I would want to title something like Jesus and Jihad. Um, I think the whole concept of Jihad and the, and the Muslim concept of Jihad has been completely misunderstood and misused, in particularly in the Western media. Um, and so I'd like to sort of clarify that by making an argument that um, in the first century, Jesus was engaged in what would be considered jihad, and that this is not a bad thing. So, but that's that's a project that's that's a little down down the line. Yeah, those those sound great. I look forward to them. Um, well, thank you again, Robert. Uh, again, the book uh, you did a, a wonderful job, and uh, I appreciate you making time to talk with us. And uh, maybe we'll have to get you back for one of these other books in the future. Thank, thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again. That was my talk with Robert Schettinger, professor of religion at Luther College, about his new book, Was Jesus a Muslim? Questioning Categories in the Study of Religion, which came out with Fortress Press in 2009.